0: listening to the addiction files where we discuss evidence-based treatment clinical pearls and resources while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives we are the addiction doctors dr darlene peterson and paula cook All right, welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are so thrilled. Today, we have Dr. Richard Andrews from Houston, Texas, joining us. And we are talking about hepatitis C in our addiction patients. We want to make sure that all primary care physicians know out there that we can treat hepatitis C and we need to make sure our patients know. Dr. Andrews, I just have to say you have a very impressive CV. Paul and I were going over this. Where do I start? (laughs) Maybe I'm just good at writing CVs. I don't know. (laughs)
1: Well, so this is Dr. Richard Andrews, MD, MPH. We're delighted to have him. He trained and got his MD at the University of Connecticut Medical School and his post baccalaureate studies um, at Brooklyn College in New York. He did a preventative medicine residency at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health and a family medicine residency, Georgetown University. He is American Board of Family Medicine certified. He is on the track practice pathway track to become addiction medicine board certified. He didn't say that in his bio, but I wanted to say that because I think that's wonderful. He has achieved several wonderful awards, including in July of 2019, the CDC's Hep B champion. Award for Outstanding Commitment to Eliminating Hepatitis B and Liver Cancer in the United States. He's held multiple committee responsibilities, including his advisory council for hepatitis B of the United States and advisor to the National Task Force on Hepatitis B, as well as at one point being the co-chair to the same task force. And he currently works over a methadone clinic. And in the past, he was the director of viral hepatitis at the Hope Clinic in Houston. He's got multiple publications, including 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 one that I'd like to especially highlight it is from the AAFP Journal, which, of course, is one of the journals we all live by in, in family medicine, and that is in the October 2018 edition, and the title of the, of the article is Family Physicians Can Manage Adults With Hepatitis C. He is fluent in English and Spanish, having grown up in Spain, although I must say, Dr. Andrews, you do not sound Spanish at all. <laughs> <laughs> and he has limited medical Arabic, French, Haitian, Mandarin, and... In Russian. And he has had lots of experience, obviously, working with patients in hepatitis B and C. And as well as getting his board certification in addiction medicine, he wants to continue treating hepatitis B, C and teaching others to do so. And so we are delighted to have you. Welcome to the show. Yeah, that is that is an impressive array. Well, I'm interested in how you learn so many languages. Dr. Andrews, uh, how, what's the story behind that?
2: Uh, well, I, I didn't really learn them. That's the story. I, I basically, uh, English and Spanish, I, I cheated on Spanish because I grew up in Spain. So that was, that part was easy. Uh, and then the other languages, I just learn a handful of phrases really. Uh, and I seem to have a knack for, for parroting whatever the other person said. So I, I, I ask patients uh, if they're, if, if I'm seeing a number of patients from that language group, then I say, you know, how do I have a standard set of phrases? that I learn like, uh, you know, take a deep breath and does this hurt? And thing, and of course, hello and goodbye and thank you and please. And, uh, and it, it's, it's, it's a very limited number of phrases really, but, but I, do, uh, I do enjoy languages anyway.
1: That's wonderful.
0: Yeah, it's still very impressive. I'm going to turn it over to you to introduce the topic to us. Okay, great. Well,
2: I want to say to you hosts, I I really uh, love the show, and I've listened to, I think, all the episodes and plan to listen to more of them. So thank you for doing the show, and thanks for letting me talk a little bit. Uh, I thought there was a bit of an overlap between addiction and...
1: I have a question for you, so maybe this is out of place, but I really enjoy working in methadone clinics as well, in OTPs. I've worked in the methadone clinic world for years and years, and I just love it. But do you... Uh, test and treat hepatitis C in your methadone clinic in Houston, or do you refer patients out?
2: Uh, we refer patients out. It's one of the first things I did when I when I was hired. Is I suggested that we start treating it there. But these uh, these wheels move slowly, as you know. So even in my own clinic, uh, I can't. Uh, I mean, I, eventually, yeah, they're they're enthusiastic about it. But I think they're juggling so many other balls at the moment, uh, including we're moving to a new building soon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: Well, good luck with that. I'm. I think that sounds wonderful. I think there's two things. This is an opinion, but there are two things that have been missing from methadone clinic world. One is testing and treatment of hepatitis C, and the other one is aggressive referral to harm reduction services for patients who still might actively be using. But that's a whole nother conversation. So I'm excited that you're going to broach that topic, and I doing the same thing here in Salt Lake, we're trying to figure out a way that we can start treating directly from the methadone clinic. And for us, it seems to be an issue of licensing and scope that might be probably part of the barrier as well. But anyway, we're excited to hear what you have to say. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about your what, what's going on in the world of hepatitis C for people with substance use disorder?
2: Sure. So um, and I understand both of you guys are, are treating some hep C. So uh, if I say anything wrong, you can correct me on this. Because <laughs> this is a Conversation,
0: uh, you'll you'll later. need to correct us i'm sure
2: <laughs> <laughs> so first i wanted to say that i don't have any financial conflicts of interest in case that's an issue I've been in houston since about 2008 before 2008 i really knew virtually nothing about treating hepatitis b or c Short, shortly after coming on board at that clinic in houston which is basically a clinic started by the local asian community and so as soon as you hear the word asian you already know that uh, there, there's a lot of people at risk for hepatitis B and to some extent hepatitis C and so my boss informed me shortly after I arrived uh, at that job that we were going to start treating hepatitis B in-house and so I said okay and uh, started learning about it and going to every hepatitis B lecture I could get my ears on uh, and and then I noticed after a while that uh, you keep hearing the same concepts over and over and over again even if you're not very bright you can you can pick up pick up the basics my boss kept asking me when are we going to start treating hepatitis C Uh, and I said well when the medicines get easier I think it was late 2014. Harvoni was approved, and and we had the birth of the direct-acting antivirals, the DAA medications, which made things so much easier. Uh, I have never treated a patient with interferon and ribavirin, uh, and I studiously avoided doing that because I knew that it was. It's not just difficult for the for the clinician if you haven't done that before. It may even be more difficult for your staff because patients have tons of side effects. They take the medicine forever. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but they take the medicine for a very long time. And even then, most of them don't get cured. And so I don't blame somebody for, I think people still have a little bit of PTSD thinking, you know, that treating hep C is challenging because they don't realize the new medicines are so good. As one of, as one resource that may be helpful to people, I wrote a 2018 article in American Family Physician, which kind of summarizes uh, hep C and its management and not very much has changed really since then. Now the, I wanted to mention the uh, WHO goal for 2030, which is to eliminate both hep B and C by 2030. Many countries are doing quite well, including Spain where I grew up where they've been quite aggressive, did some drug decriminalization, which is helpful and stuff like that, but as a harm reduction thing, uh, and aggressively treating prisoners and that sort of thing so uh, and other marginalized populations but the US, uh, as you may have heard, is not doing very well we're having an increase in the number of hep C cases and so I think we have an opportunity to improve, really. Now, some people, when they first hear that WHO goal of elimination of HEP B and C by 2030, they might think that's horrendously optimistic, except that they they don't really mean total elimination. They mean elimination as a major public health prompt. So I wanted to also mention the other letters of the alphabet. Uh, Today, we're going to Talk about Hep C, but uh, don't forget hepatitis A. A patient with any form of hepatitis, uh, if they get Hep A on top of it, then that's a disaster and can be can be fatal. And so that that's a vaccine-preventable disease. We should be screening people for all the hepatitises. Uh, hep D, of course, you only need to screen for if the patient has Hep B because they they cannot get D unless they have Hep B. But you should certainly be screening for A, B, and C or immunizing, of course. Accordingly.
0: Those are always favorite board questions. Oh yeah, yeah, Those, yeah, to all of our learners out there. Oh, there you go. Hep C.
2: It's an RNA virus. I'm not going to go too deeply into the biology of it because I want to be practical and discuss, uh, you know, how to treat things and stuff like that. But there is one thing that's kind of interesting to know about Hep C, and this is unlike hepatitis B and unlike HIV, there is no nothing in the nucleus of the liver cell from hepatitis C. It's only in the cytoplasm, and so that's why. These medications can go into the cytoplasm and the blood and get rid of the virus, and then there is no reservoir for the, for the infection to come back. Once you have achieved SVR or sustained viral uh, remission, you can get reinfected, of course, because being infected does not confer immunity, but you will not, that infection will not come back. And so that's uh, that's reassuring, and uh, so that may be helpful for both clinicians and patients um, to know about. Because sometimes, for example, clinicians or patients, uh, you know, they'll they'll want to keep checking and stuff like that. But once you've determined that the person is in fact cured, then then you leave it alone, unless they're at continued risk, uh, and then you could screen on that basis. So uh, most new cases are associated with uh, with drug use. There's roughly three million cases, depending on which study you look at, there's roughly 3 million cases of chronic hepatitis C in the U.S. I think now it's a bit lower than that, perhaps because of treatment. Although, again, cases are rising at this point, actually. And now there's, you know, of course, we had the famous baby boomer bulge, which was uh, also associated with drug use mostly, I think. Then, uh, But now you have kind of a bimodal distribution where you have a lot of younger people. You still have that baby boomer bulge of hepatitis C infected patients. Now you've got a slightly even larger bulge in the 20s and 30s age range. And so, again, we need to be, uh, I would say, universal screening of hep C is reasonable, really.
0: And that's the current U.S. Preventative Task Force guidelines is at least a one-time screening all adults 18 and older hepatitis C not yes. just our high-risk patients. Everyone at least once has been our current guidelines.
2: Yes. And what's interesting, you guys may have seen the MMWR that came out from the CDC April 1, just a couple weeks ago, uh, in which they finally nearly achieved a recommendation of uh, universal screening for hep B, which is new, that it should be that universal. So now from basically birth to 60, uh, it's, it's universal recommendation. And then above that, it continues to be, I guess you'd say, universal for people with particular risk factors uh, above 60. And then it is uh, something to consider.
1: And also, so I I have a comment just about how often should we be retesting our patients who are high risk? You know, often we have patients who are injecting drugs, or they may go in and out of high risk behavior for contracting hepatitis C, particularly. Mm-hmm. What would be a fair recommendation, or what should we be doing in our practice in terms of screening those folks? How frequently?
2: That's a great question. I uh, I would say annually if they don't appear to have, and you may not have complete information on this, but I would say annually if they don't appear to have changed some of their practices, because we I know you guys are discussing harm reduction practices and stuff like that. Patients, you know, may be a little more trainable in the aftermath of hep C and its treatment and stuff and maybe uh, I, th- I think there actually is evidence suggesting that these are th- that people do in fact have safer behaviors after treatment and especially if that's reinforced there if, if for example they're not sharing needles you know or or even sharing cocaine straws a lot of people think it's only needles but of course anything you know cocaine straws can also transmit viral hepatitis but if, if they're not sharing equipment, and that then I would say they're at relatively low risk. And by the way, cure rates in drug users uh, are quite high and comparable to people who are not drug users. So that's reassuring. And uh, But what's interesting about hep C in terms of its behavior is it, it seems to be more readily transmitted through things like uh, percutaneous exposures than hep B and even HIV. And compared to the others, it's not readily passed sexually. It can be transmitted sexually. But there's you, you have couples you know where one has hep C and one doesn't, and, and they can go for decades without safe sex. And the uninfected partner, in most cases, will continue to be uninfected. Infected. So that, which is always puzzling to me. And I'm not quite sure how that works, but uh, but that seems to be the case. And so, and then, but, but hepatitis C also, unlike Hep B, where most adults exposed to Hep B will develop sort of secondary immunity or what I call sort of latent infection, where they do suppress the virus and they do suppress the surface antigen, but of course they still have the uh, nuclear component uh, and under certain circumstances could reactivate their Hep B. But but in any case, uh, 90 to 95% of people exposed to Hep B will avoid chronic infection chronic hepatitis B infection, but the reverse is true in hep C. Most people exposed to hep C will develop chronic infection. Only about 15 to 20% will avoid chronic infection with hep C. And fortunately, of course, we have the medications. And so it's a little bit less of an issue if people can get into treatment. It's it's not passed, uh, B and C are not passed by casual contact, like, you know, hugging and sharing uh, utensils and drinking out of the same glass and that
1: stuff.
2: But you would not share a toothbrush with somebody, you would not share a razor, which hopefully is probably not a good idea anyway, with somebody.
1: Right. And can I just add yeah. that um, often for folks, it's worth educating our patients who inject drugs that it's not only shared needles that carry a risk, it's also shared cottons, filters, or spoons, or water. And even sharing the washings of a syringe can transmit hepatitis C virus as well. And I think the virus actually lives quite a long time inside in a syringe that's had blood contaminated with hepatitis C. So I've had lots of patients say, well, I've never shared a needle, but they've shared other equipment. Like you mentioned straws, but it can be as simple as a filter. And those cottons and filters are not always easy to get, especially if you don't have syringe exchange programs in your neighborhood or if you live in a rural area. And so accessing clean needles is not the only issue. It's also accessing clean cookers, clean water, and all of those supplies as well in order to avoid transmission of HIV and hep C. No, that's
2: that's a very good point. How might hep C present? Well, acute hep C, I think most clinicians will probably never see it. And interestingly, only about 30% of hep C patients even have symptoms. So that that goes back to that universal screening thing, and and screening when you have high risk patients, uh, which which our patients are. If a patient does have symptoms, it may be mild and it'd be easy to overlook it, and I'm sure we all have overlooked it. I'm sure I've overlooked it sometimes. And of course, they may have classic sort of viral syndrome symptoms. It's a little easier if they have jaundice or right upper quadrant, ab, you know, pain or tenderness, and then you're probably a little more likely to say, Hey, this could be, this could be hepatitis. I better check for for everything. And in that case, you would want to check not only the antibody but the but the RNA by PCR because it takes a while for the antibody to develop, and you may miss it if you only check the antibody in that situation. But of course, people spend a lot more time uh, in with chronic Hep C than they do with acute Hep C. That usually does not have symptoms either. Uh, sometimes patients will have fatigue, and they'll claim that that it that they got better after treatment, and I hope that's true. Although sometimes I think they're just happy that they don't have Hep C. <laughs> (laughs) anymore. And it makes them feel less, less fatigued. Of course, of course, with uh, chronic hep C, you get these cycles of inflammation in the liver, you know, where it gets, you know, the the immune system and the virus are fighting each other. And that battle takes place in the liver, of course. And so you get uh, inflammation and scarring and inflammation and scarring. And depending on when you check their, their liver enzymes, you may or may not see evidence of inflammation. So again, most of your hep C patients are not going to have symptoms.
0: And I think that's such a good point. Some providers will think I don't need to do a hepatitis test because they have normal liver enzymes. it's a really good take home point. And also patients will go to the doctor and say, well, I went and I had labs and they told me my liver was normal and they'll take that as reassurance. So it's really important that you actually, that you get a test for hepatitis C and that it's negative.
2: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for reinforcing that. I think, that's really, I think that is really important. No, there's a huge number of patients with, with any kind of viral hepatitis that do not have any inflammation at the time you check. We can't check them every day. We can't check their liver enzymes. You know, come back tomorrow and we'll check your liver enzymes again. That's that's not going to work. And, uh, of course, you could also check a CBC, which tells you about something like platelets, especially once you've determined that they have any kind of viral hepatitis, and that would tell you about cirrhosis. By the way, I wanted to mention with ALT and AS, ST, the two liver enzymes that we use the most, uh, it can be helpful to know that ALT, and I, I use L here as a, as a memory aid, the ALT is more liver-specific, L for liver, uh, more liver-specific than AST. Now, we use AST also, but, but when you're focusing on one or the other, you're mostly going to be looking at your ALT. And of course, sometimes we still sort of lazily call those liver function tests or LFTs, and as you know, they are not liver function tests. They, are, they reflect liver inflammation. So, so they are not really true liver function tests. Albumin and PTINR are liver function tests. Oh, and when you do screen uh, and for, for chronic hep C, you want to screen for the antibody with a reflex to PCR so that that happens automatically. Uh, and again, most people with chronic hep C and most people with cirrhosis don't know that they have it.
1: This is, so, this is such a good recommendation because I find that you often only have one chance to capture a patient and especially phlebotomize a patient. Mm-hmm. Some of our patients are extremely hard to draw blood. I mean, you might you're going to have to do more labs anyway, but to get that reflex gives you an immediate answer rather than this very indeterminate lab of antibody positive and you have no idea if they really do have active virus. And so to get the reflex is extremely helpful.
2: And and get two phone numbers for the patient or three phone numbers or whatever. Let's see. And then after confirmation, after that PCR comes back positive, the antibody positive and the PCR negative. And that suggests that the person either spontaneously or perhaps through treatment, they did clear the the virus and they are effectively cured. But if, they, but if you confirm that they have active chronic hepatitis C, then you would check a CBC, again, you're looking mostly at platelets there, uh, and a comprehensive metabolic profile. course, you want to know their renal function because when you prescribe a medication, then you'll want to know about their renal function. The viral load, you know, genotype, uh, HIV, and again, screening, as we said before, for uh, hepatitis A and B. Now, strictly speaking, the genotype and the viral load are really, strictly speaking, not all that important. Uh, They're they're important for, you might say, for insurance reasons or for for getting the medicine approved reasons. The current uh, DAA medicines are so effective that they really uh look down their nose at uh, at genotype and 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 PCR uh issues you know viral load issues they they really don't care uh what the viral load is and they really don't care for the most part what genotype it is now when you're trying to get the medicine approved or whatever then they're going to ask for genotype and PCR.
1: Have you had um, an issue where you've seen extremely low viral load? I know at our clinic we've had a couple of patients where their viral load was very was present. They did have some mm-hmm. virus, but it was extremely small. and And what have you done in those situations?
2: I, I treat any detectable uh, uh, RNA as as equivalent to uh, I, I consider a low number and a high number to be the same thing. Basically, that that could be because remember the. Uh, the virus and the immune system are constantly uh, battling each other. And sometimes one has the upper hand versus the other. And sometimes you'll even have interesting dynamics. Like you mentioned the patient you had with uh, both hep B and hep C, you know, sometimes another agent will compete with the hep C. And so you may get different numbers based on that competition. Now it's more common for for the hep C to make the hep B number low than the other way around. But again, there could be other factors. I just figure if... If it's uh, maybe the person temporarily is uh, having some success in battling the hep C, but then you know a month from now, six months from now, they could not be doing so well because the virus, here's an interesting thing about the hep C virus also, it has, it has what sounds like should be a disadvantage, and that is that it has a sloppy RNA transcription process. Uh, you would think that would be a disaster for most organisms, but in fact, the hep, for the hep C, it's an advantage because that's why it so quickly develops variants, uh, and those variants may be, the variants help it evade all the attempts at vaccine creation, for example, but they, they can also help evade the immune system. And so the hep C virus is constantly producing variants because it doesn't trans, trans, transcribe very well, which turns out to be an advantage. Now, the physical exam in chronic hep C, again, usually uh, it's going to be unremarkable. If you have a patient like the patient you had, Paula, who who has de- decompensated liver disease, then that's somebody who uh, should be under the care of a hepatologist. I have no interest in taking care of somebody with decompensated liver disease. I can tell you that right now, and I'm not qualified to do so. And so I will refer them immediately. So you're really not going to see things like the you know, the massive ascites or the uh, e- even the spider angiomata, you know, you may see jaundice once in a while and that kind of stuff. But in a patient with viral hepatitis and any of these, I would engage a, a hepatologist right away. And then, of course, uh, for cirrhosis itself, of course, it can be caused by hep C or NASH, of course, which is the sort of the inflammatory cousin of fatty liver disease. Most people with fatty liver disease do not get NASH, in fact, but maybe 15 to 20 percent do. And so they could also develop liver issues. And we know about hep B and alcohol as other things that aggravate the liver. Interestingly about cirrhosis, uh, I don't know about you guys, uh, because since you're younger than I am, when I was trained, we were taught that cirrhosis was irreversible. It's permanent. Of course, now we know that it isn't. Uh, Now, if you have advanced liver disease, then, then it basically is irreversible or permanent. But for people with mild to moderate cirrhosis, if you take away with the thing that whatever's irritating, irritating the liver, then it, it's quite capable of, uh, of improving. And as far as the medications go, I mean, of course, there are several approved medications. Uh, there are two uh, pan-genotypic medications currently available, the Epclusa and Maverit or you know, Epclusa is so sophospuvir with velpatisphere, and Maverit is the Glecoprovir with Pibrentisphere. And since those are so hard to say. That's why we use the brand names. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm yeah, surprised. Yeah,
1: that's a good I... <laughs> choice.
2: <laughs> Let's see. And insurance may have a favorite one way or the other. And you may have uninsured patients. Curiously, the uninsured patients are the easiest ones to get medicines for. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but um, because the, the manufacturers will typically make the medicine available as soon as they determine that the patient does not have insurance, then they make the medicine available. Generally, they're, they're pretty good about that, but uh, you don't really need to be. And this is why I think primary care people should consider treating Hep C is you really don't need to be an expert with all this stuff. Uh, I mean, with all the different medicines, for example, and that kind of stuff, you could really prescribe any one of them, honestly. uh, And then, and then take a look at the resources that we're going to put in the, uh, in the links uh, for the show. Uh, And I, I, highly recommend a couple of resources. Uh, the principal one, I would say, uh, because it's so easy to use, is the, is the uh, UCSF, University of California in San Francisco. They host the Hepatitis C Warm Line, and we will have the link for that. And And you could even just Google it. You could just say, you know, UCSF Hepatitis C Consultation. That will bring up their, what's called their National Clinician Consultation Center, uh, an incredible resource. It's cdc support. They're super friendly, super supportive, very primary care oriented, and they have—they uh, not only help people, clinicians with with HIV and addiction issues, but in this case, uh, I want to focus on the Hep C that they Hep C uh, guidance that they give. And so, you can either call them up during the day; it's not available twenty four seven. The phone call. Uh, is is available during the day Monday through Friday pretty generous hours though because they have to serve the West Coast and the East Coast and you can either call them up on the phone and say I've got a 37 year old male with blah 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 and the ALT is such and such and the genotype is blah 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 and then they will just give you guidance right over the phone about which medicine you should use and and things to watch out for it's just an incredible resource super super informal and supportive and I like to do it rather than the phone call I prefer to click on the button that says submit a case and then you just type in you know it'll have, it'll prompt you for which information to put in and then you say what your question is and then you say I want you to reply by email or phone, and then they get back to you. They're, they get back to you either the same day or at the latest, maybe the next day, and you can specify, you know, email or phone. It's just an incredible resource, and that's an official, I treated that as an official consult, because even though the people calling you, either primary care clinicians themselves, but they are following a, a hepatology and infectious disease-sanctioned protocol, and so I would call those, I, I would write those in my electronic Medical record as um, as this is a consult from Doctor So and So. Just find one of the names of one of the hepatologists, and they recommended such and such a medication. And then I would, you know, in case the insurance company or any other payer is saying we want to know that, you know, that a specialist signed off on it, and you can use that resource, you know, and it's just and and you don't have you, you don't have to know anything about Hep C, honestly. You you and and then you can call them up a week later and say, oh, the patient came back and they I started such and such and they developed abdominal pain, what do I do? You can ask anything. No question is too stupid. It is the most amazing resource.
1: That is so wonderful. It's like a real-time Project Echo, isn't it? I mean, we have Project Echo in Utah that's really robust. It's led by Dr. Terry Box, and he's just amazing. He helps us all. You know, we kind of look to him as our hepatology guru. And this sounds like just the same thing, but in real time. So that's a wonderful resource. Thank you for telling us about that. I'm going to use that.
2: Yeah, it's really an amazing resource. And then um, and I thank you for mentioning ECHO because that's the other resource I was going to mention. And what I would encourage people to do, ECHO is another CDC supported thing, but it's also supported by about a million other entities. It's got a, an incredible evidence base showing that it's effective. It actually, when it started many years ago, it was started in the context of viral hepatitis in New Mexico. And, and the hepatologist knew that he and his very small number of hepatology colleagues were not going to be able to see people throughout the state. And there were six to nine months delays for getting people into care and that kind of stuff and that's why they started that so but if you don't know if you have an echo in your area the the information i sent the links that we will provide uh and show there uh it has the phone number but again you could just google uh you know echo hepatitis c and uh, and and then find out uh, if you can't find out that way, then you can call the Echo Group in University of New Mexico, and then you can just call there and say, "Where's the closest Hepatitis C Echo?" There are several, and but honestly. Uh, the, the echoes as long as they're not overloaded with cases and some are and some aren't then you they don't even care if you're from their area
1: that's exactly right
2: although uh, I found out recently that it has to be has to be in the US but anyway and um, and then your insurance of course may you know whichever one you prescribe your insurance may say no we want you to use that up that one over there and then you can just switch it and there is a cleanup I call it a cleanup antiviral most of the hepatitis C medicines we use have two antivirals Combined, and then when that fails, then it it may be appropriate in some cases for patients to use Vosevi, which is a three antivirus medication uh, combination, and that will nearly always clear the ones that failed, assuming they're adhering, of course. You know, we'll nearly always clear the ones that didn't get cleared uh, initially. I would also strongly recommend, uh, once you start prescribing, that you find out if there's a specialty pharmacy in your area, and I think even a remote specialty pharmacy would work, honestly, and they are, you know, try to find one that that agrees to do the paperwork for your uninsured patients in addition to your insured patients. Some of them will try to say, no, 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 we're only gonna take the insured patients and you just say, okay, you just lost our business and then you go find somebody and it won't be hard to find somebody because they make enough money on the insured patients they are perfectly happy to handle a certain number of uninsured patients for you, and it reduces your staff's paperwork by 90%. You know, ideally, you're gonna see the patient after starting medication, you'll see the patient at four weeks and check a viral load. Because if the medication's not working, then you're going to stop that prescription and uh, and try another one. But that would be a good time again to contact uh, either the Echo or the uh, or the Hepatitis C Warm Line, the National Clinician Consultation Center, and and say here's what's going on. So uh, and then for the for your cirrhosis patients, don't forget that it's important every patient once you've diagnosed cirrhosis, you want to make sure that you're getting them an EGD to screen for varices. That's, so every single uh, cirrhotic patient needs that. And once you have cirrhosis from any cause, that person has to be on liver cancer surveillance every six months for the rest of their life. And that's usually an AFP and an ultrasound. In, in most cases. Oh, I wanted to mention uh, criteria for decompensated cirrhosis because those patients, as soon as you determine that, then that person, not everybody with cirrhosis necessarily has to go to a hepatologist. Uh, most patients with cirrhosis have no symptoms and their liver's doing fine. But once they get to the point where they're decompensated, that's an automatic referral. And that would include uh, somebody with uh, viral hepatitis or history of viral hepatitis and a, a history of a variceal bleed ever, not just not not having varices, you can have varices, but if they've never bled, that's not a that doesn't meet the criterion. Or if they have jaundice, or if they have hepatorenal syndrome. Uh, if they have hepatic encephalopathy, if they have ascites, or if they have a history of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis—again, any of those—that's an automatic hepatology referral.
1: So, so the question, the kind of the elephant in the room for our podcast, especially, is: ta- Let's talk about the treatment criteria for patients who are still using. IV drugs? Because this has been, this has changed and it's, it is a little bit controversial still because you still run into providers who refuse to treat patients with hepatitis C if they're still using substances. So What is your practice in Houston and what do you have to adhere to? And and we can talk about what we're doing here in in, uh, Utah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the evidence uh, that I've seen and, and I think the current recommendation from most, most hepatitis experts is that a person with uh, who is still engaging in whatever the risk factor is still needs to be treated and then you work on harm reduction like I say cure rates are excellent and reinfection rates are actually much lower than than people uh, would expect you know it's at most it's in maybe the the low double digits or something uh, it, it's really surprisingly uncommon especially when that that harm reduction stuff is reinforced and and because you know and patients often have a change in mood you know hepatitis C is fascinating in the sense that it's it's a Associated among other things, as far as extrahepatic disease, it's associated with depression, for example. I mean, of course, you're depressed because you have hepatitis C and that kind of stuff. But even more than hepatitis B, for uh, and so there may be something direct that the virus is doing. But if you, if you, once you cure them, uh, people often have a change of a change of attitude and a change of heart because they thought they were going to have hepatitis C forever, and it's very common that they start uh, taking care of themselves better and their lifestyle can change. A Certainly isn't universal, but that is a very common pattern. So I would say just treat the patient and move on from there.
1: Exactly. And uh, NIDA, the National Institute of Health, has actually a whole section of recommendations on this very topic online. And there's a very interesting piece written. In October 25th of 2021, so just barely talking about treating hepatitis C and opioid use disorder together, or one or the other, but inviting the secondary treatment in. They, just as you said, if you treat hepatitis C in active people who use drugs, often they will reduce their use. Likewise, if you give patients who are being treated um, with hepatitis C opioid agonist therapy, they are more likely to achieve elimination of their hepatitis C. And I guess this all comes from the ANCHOR study, which looked to investigate whether hepatitis C treatment could serve as an opportunity to engage people in care for their opioid addiction. And and they found that it did. And if they offered buprenorphine to people while they were receiving hepatitis C treatment, they had higher hepatitis C cure rates, and they had greater decline in opioid-positive urine drug screens as well. So it's so fascinating that it goes both directions and that we need to really work hard as a community to dispel this culture of making- patients who are using drugs wait to treat their hepatitis C. I mean it's it's unethical in fact NIDA actually says what well, let me see what they say it's unethical to do so because it's you know denying people a basically a right for treatment of a chronic and dangerous medical condition. And oh this is what they say I'm just going to quote Uh, Dr. Rosenthal, who's from the Institute of Human Virology, she said, we believe that excluding patients with active drug use from treatment is unjust and discriminatory, and that denying HCV treatment to people who inject drugs would not only prevent them from getting potentially life-saving therapy, but could also alienate them from engaging in further medical care. And I think that's that we see that so often, where people just feel like they're this, I mean, you talked about marginalized populations in the beginning, and folks just don't feel like they're worthy, and they've been told they're not worthy, and yet from a public health perspective, it makes no sense, right, to have people who are shedding virus continue to shed virus, and then individually, it doesn't make sense to have them progress in their disease from a population health or a public health perspective either, because they progress then to advanced disease, which requires higher level of medical care. So there's so many reasons why this is so important, and and it makes makes me sad and mad when I hear that patients have been turned away from specialists or primary care doctors doctors who probably, or providers who don't understand or don't know the new recommendation that we should not wait. We should just go ahead and start treatment if we can. That's my soapbox, clearly, because I didn't even take a breath.
2: Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. No, that, I think it's a very good point. And, but it's, it's a bit like uh, not treating, saying you're not going to treat diabetics if they eat donuts or something.
1: Exactly, exactly. If we waited for everyone to be better in order to treat their chronic disease, we, we wouldn't, treating chronic disease. I found it's an extremely satisfying and rewarding part of medicine is to treat folks for their hepatitis C, either when they're in remission from their addiction or if they're actively using. There's this sense of value that they have for themselves, just like you said, that they Wow, I'm worth it. This is worth it, and and it's so interesting that you mentioned that they have lower reinfection rates than you would imagine. So even though that's a concern, and you hear that sometimes, we have an insurance, we have a payer who refuses to treat patients who are actively using for their hepatitis C. And- well,
2: you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because that may be in violation of the law. And people with viral hepatitis, I know this applies to B, and I think it applies to C also. They're covered by the Americans for Disabilities.
1: Very good, very good advice. Thank you.
0: I have. One question. So, Richard, on... Determining kind of your like fibrosis scores. I mean, what test do you typically use? Are you using, are you just doing like the AST platelet ratio, like the APRI? Are you doing a more specific scoring like FibroSure? It depends. I only, I only order FibroSure or a similar. Now, FibroSure is a
2: brand name, it's yeah. offered by a particular lab, and then every, every lab has its own equivalent of FibroSure. I, I only order those if. I think the uh, whoever's going to cover the medicine is insisting that I get it. Otherwise, I do use mostly the Apri and uh, or sometimes the Fib4. Uh, in fact, I use App, and there's other apps, of course. I use an app called H-E-P-C-A-L-C, HEPCALC, and that's, uh, that's a nice one for just plugging in your numbers and getting your, your Fib4 and your Apri. So and then of course for the uh for for determining cirrhosis platelets and albumin are mostly what you're looking at there and platelets start going down in context of cirrhosis before albumin. So That's
1: really good. That's such those are excellent clinical pearls. And I think learners especially it took me yeah, maybe I'm like I'm slow but it took me years to figure that out and just like you said, liver function tests aren't really testing the function of the liver. Albumin and platelets are doing that. The liver enzymes measure inflammation. But that it's so easy, not easy, but it makes it much more intuitive if you understand how to interpret just a CBC and a CMP once you really understand that. And then you could calculate the Fib4 for free. You don't have to pay for another product unless you said you and yes. this you have to. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And the biopsies are, are, are uncommon these days. I mean, they're still done, but obviously the primary care clinician is not going to do it. Can
1: you talk to us a little bit about vaccination? So um, it seems like hepatitis uh, B immunity wanes for people even who've been immunized in the past. Is that true or am I no. seeing a lot of unimmunized people no, uh, no, and no. what's the requirement for vaccinating our patients with hepatitis C
2: yeah I would say I've seen no evidence that once a person achieves um, and in terms of quantitative numbers it's either well qualitative and quantitative in a sense are the same because for anybody, for surface antibody levels, hepatitis B surface antibody, if it's if it's qualitative, then showing that they have adequate antibody means that it's above ten. So so that's also in a sense a kind of a a quantitative measure. Uh, And or if it's quantitative, then anything above ten and and a higher number above ten doesn't necessarily correlate with. It's not like a linear thing. You know, if it's just above ten or if it's adequate, then then that's immune. And I I do not I do not think there's any evidence that any Anybody ever needs a booster, the antibody levels will go down, but of course you still have white cell immunity and that sort of thing. You know, so uh, I would say that once somebody has immunity, then they virtually never get infected from Hep B. If we're
1: if we have evidence from their hepatitis B serology that they are not immune to hepatitis B, we should go ahead and vaccinate them. For hepatitis B, yes, and the same is true for hepatitis A, I guess as well.
2: Yes, for patients who don't have immunity.
1: Thank you. That's that, thank you. That's great. I'm so glad you uh, clarified that for us. Well, thank you so much. This has been so. I've had learned many clinical pearls. I've been taking notes, and so I'm really grateful for your expertise. Any last
0: anything else that we need to know? I, I do want to just reinforce again how because
2: uh, people who are a little bit anxious about starting Hep C treatment thinking that it's they might think that it's similar to HIV treatment where it's still rather complex it's, it's nothing like that. These medicines, in fact, in some parts of the world, they check a hep C antibody, and then they, if it's positive, this is in countries where they don't have enough resources, right? And they, they don't have enough money to, to, to get all the fancy tests. Once they determine somebody has hep C antibody, and if they have no history of, of hep C treatment, they'll just dispense the entire course of therapy, and the patient goes home and takes it, and that's the end of it. That's how easy it is. And, and in wow. Australia, for example, registered nurses are treating hep C by protocol call out in rural areas, and their cure rates are very good. So, so yes, you can do this. And those resources I mentioned, the uh, UCSF uh, National Clinician Consultation Center, uh, the Warm Line, and the ECHO are so incredibly supportive.
1: Well, that's that's wonderful. And I, I'm really excited to hear about some alternative models that are being used in rural areas and other countries. One of the challenges that, I'm and I'm not alone in this, I'm sure, that we faced is getting confirmatory labs. So getting the HIV and the hep B serology and the PTINR And sometimes it's hard to get people back in, or it's hard to get their blood the second time. Um, and so just trying to figure out how we can be better at that. And then the other thing is, how do we take hepatitis C treatment to the people? you know And there's some people doing some really interesting work uh, combining hepatitis C treatment with syringe exchange programs or with mobile MOUD programs. So doing, obviously there's rapid HCV tests available. their antibody tests. So you need confirmatory labs. But I think this is so interesting. I'm glad you told us about that. There's, there are models that exists that are effective and highly cost effective, probably and deliverable in places where they don't have access to traditional treatment uh, in terms of like seeing a provider face to face and or a hepatologist even.
0: And I know we have people out there listening that these medications, like Richard said, they're some of this is a one pill or three pills, and you take them for two months or three months. And now, it's so, some patients will need
2: six months of therapy, you know, and stuff. But but that's the kind of thing that you would clear clarify with with uh, with your uh, with the UCSF thing or the ECHO. And of course, one important thing with the Maverit is it, it is three pills, but some people make the mistake of taking them uh, one three times a day. And that's not, it's designed to be taken all three pills. I tell people it's basically one big pill chopped up into three pieces and you have to take the whole thing. You have to take, you know, not in one swallow, but you have to take
1: at the same time. Yeah, I, t- I ask my patients, I mean, if we don't have something that we have to, like we're not using Vesovia or something, I and I think we're probably going to have the luxury of using either Maverick or Epclusa, I give them the choice. Do you want to take three pills at one time, once a day, for eight weeks, or would you prefer to just take one pill a day for 12 weeks? And give people a little bit of control over their treatment because some people have a hard time with pills, and I find most people just want to get it over and done with, and they do the eight weeks. But it's it's nice to know that it's very very simple. It's easy to write for. Specialty pharmacy will deliver it. Patients do very well on it. I I don't hear too many adverse effects from the medication treatment itself. So that's the other thing that's nice to know. You don't have to be too weary of people failing treatment because of side effects. Is that true? Do you find that to be true?
2: Absolutely. And in fact, I tell them. And I I tell them because I try to prepare them for this. I say, I say, if you do get some mild side effects, that tells you that the medicine's working.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Andrews. We have learned so much, and we cannot thank you enough.
2: Well, thank you for doing your show. I've I've learned uh, a lot of stuff, a lot of addiction stuff from your show. So
1: well, we're so grateful. We're thankful that you've joined us, and we hope to learn more about hepatitis B from you in the future, that would be wonderful. And the take-home points are providers, primary care providers, other kinds of medical providers can treat hepatitis C. It's extremely important to do so because hepatitis C is often progressive and causes cirrhosis, which is now one of the leading causes of, of Death for patients from liver diseases because of hepatitis C, correct, as well as Nash and alcoholic liver disease. So the ins and outs are fairly simple. There's wonderful resources, including UCSF Hepatitis C Warm Line. We're going to post all those uh, resources that Dr. Andrews referenced on our on our website and our notes, and then we also on social media. You can follow us on Twitter instagram and facebook and shout out to us give us some feedback give us some suggestions for future episodes it's great to have you again thank you very much
0: until next time hey check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles@gmail.com. at gmail.com thank you so much to ricky valides for use of his song awake check him out at RickyValadies.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having, opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.